Well, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, you're a great bunch. Are you ready to hear the word of God today? Are you ready to obey the word of God today? All right, that's good. Well, we're going to continue our series in the book of Colossians, which I have said before is, in my opinion, perhaps the best chapter on discipleship, Christian discipleship and Christian living in the entire Bible. And today we're going to go into our next phase, which is Colossians 3, 5 through 11. And I'd like you to uh, read with me this text, all right? Let's read it together. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice, behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we do so with reverence. We do so with intentionality. We do so with anticipation of what we're going to learn and how we can apply it in our everyday lives. We love you. We give you thanks. And we pray in the great name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I had a very interesting conversation this week on the telephone with one of our pastors. And I was calling him up to see how he was doing because I know for years he suffered with some very serious health issues. And uh, we got to talking, and uh, he mentioned that he'd lost 100 pounds. And I said, wow, John, what happened? And he said, well, I've been doctoring, and actually we've come to the point where a specialist from the Cleveland Clinic had to come down and meet with me, and um, a surgeon. And the surgeon walked in the room, and of course, I didn't know who I was talking to. I knew he was a doctor, but... Little did I know he was the world-renowned specialist in this field of medicine. And I told the guy, I said, you know, I just think, I don't want any surgery. I just want to refine my diet and my lifestyle and lose some weight, and I'll be fine. And the doctor just shook his head and got in his face and said, John, you are absolutely obese. And I'm not going to touch you until you lose some weight. And if you don't lose this weight and get ready for surgery, he says, you're going to die a young man or you're going to end up in emergency surgery and you're going to die anyway. And my pastor friend, John, he says, you know, I've never had anybody get in my face like that. (laughs) I've never had anybody talk to me like that before. Well, guess what? He took it seriously. He's lost 100 pounds, and he's due for surgery, and he's going to come out of this thing healthier than ever. And he says, Randy, when I get through this, I'm going to be the best pastor I can be for my people because for once, I'll be healthy and happy. 
but it took a doctor to get into his face. This is what Paul is saying to us today in this passage. He says, you're a new life in Christ. If Christ is in you, you are in Christ. You are united with him. You're buried with him. You're raised with him. He's in you. You are in him. You have a new life in Christ. Now, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 3, think like it. Up with your thoughts. Sersum corda, remember? Actio sequitur esse. Action follows essence. Who we think, who we identify with, that then results in how I behave. And now Paul goes into the next one. And he literally, if you will, gets in our face. He's very forthright, beginning in verse 5. Even becoming demanding of these Colossian Christians. You see, if you'll remember in our introduction to Colossians, he spent chapters 1 and 2 writing about the supremacy and the sufficiency and the adequacy of Jesus Christ. He's all that matters. He's enough. You don't need to add anything to what he's already done for you and in you. Nothing. And in these first two chapters, he's also gone into great detail about the new life that they have in Christ. They now have a new identity. A new identity in Christ means they have a new life, a new way of life. And this new life means that their thinking has to change. They don't take cues from the culture anymore. Your cues come from above, from the kingdom of God and the reality of that. As he told the Corinthians, anyone who's in Christ is a what? A new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so Paul begins to show them now, step by step, what this new life is supposed to look like and what their part is in living it out. You see, friends, it's always been God's way. Go all the way back to Genesis. Go all the way back to Exodus, where he adopts the Israelites, the Hebrews, as slaves to be his people, of all people, them. And yet from the beginning of those early days of choosing his people, his way has always been that his people must look like it and live like it. Because it's through our character and our behavior that we reveal the reality of God's character, what's important to him and what isn't. What pleases him and what doesn't please him? God's people have always been called to be different. And with the coming of Christ, this new life becomes internalized. Not just a list of do's and don'ts as the Ten Commandments had, but actually an internal change, regeneration. So he gives them now four non-negotiable processes that work out this new life in them. And what are those? First of all, mortification. Mortification. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, is there any more in your face than that? Whatever's in your old nature, kill it. (laughs) Exterminate it. Get rid of it. Mortify it. Mortification. Put to death the sinful earthly things from your old nature lurking within you. He gets in their face. Therefore, notice the pivotal word, 
If you're thinking right, therefore, this is what it looks like in your everyday life. And I want you to notice how he has two targets that he aims at when it comes to putting to death things in our lives. Number one, the sensual sins. This is one of our Achilles heels for all human beings. And that's, first of all, sexual sin or immorality. And it's interesting to note that the rest of the list that appears here all have to do with sensual sins. We've got sexual immorality. That's the word porneia. Illicit sexual intercourse. Habitual immorality. Stepping outside of the boundaries that God has clearly given for sexuality. Then we've got impurity, which is a wider reference. In other words, he hits a target and then he just continues to widen the circle. So not only sexual sin, but impurities. That is, thoughts and words and even actions. And then lust, uncontrolled desire, shameful desires, that is more general still. And then greed. Now, some scholars believe that this greed in this context actually has to do with me thinking everybody exists for me, including sex. And so we walk all over people to get what we want. Of course, that's idolatry. However you interpret it, it means basically elbowing God out of the center. And we're on the center. We choose what we want to believe and what we want to live like. Now, it's interesting, mortify, mortification. It's from the word which we get our word mortify or to have a mortgage. What do you do when you have a mortgage? You're putting to death debt. Mortuary, place for dead. Mortify. You see, a part of Christian living is learning how to crucify the self, our desires, our values, and incorporate God's into us. That's mortification. Not to suppress them, not to learn how to control them, but to kill them. Wipe them out. You know, it's interesting that Paul lumps all these things together. Could there be a clearer, more contemporary connection to us than this? Doesn't it show that perhaps it's the sensual sins that are the Achilles heel of every human being, regardless of generation? All the way back to the beginning and all the way to the 21st century, it's our Achilles heel. And Paul targets it. And he hits it hard. And he's getting in our face. Perhaps he's identifying the most difficult thing for human beings collectively to deal with. And I know as being a pastor for 40 years, I couldn't agree more. If there was one topic I would address for better health of our society, it would be this point. We live in a sex crazed culture. It's become ridiculous. I can hardly surf through cable TV anymore or go to the movies anymore. It's ridiculous the way it's gone. And I don't believe our government gets it either because of some of the decisions that they're making. 
I don't, I don't think they get it. Perhaps I should state it this way. Maybe it's a quote from Phil Yancey that maybe brings my point home. He says, there is no human longing that is more powerful, more difficult to rein in. Sex has enough combustive force to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and anything else in its path. Boy, that's saying it. Combustive force that incinerates Conscience, vows, family commitments, and religious devotion. Oh, I wish I could tell you, I could show you over the course of my career, the broken lives, the broken families, the broken marriages, the broken minds, because this is allowed to get out of control. And our culture feeds it. We're struggling with this sex addiction, and particularly internet pornography. Folks, I don't think most people understand what internet pornography is doing to our brains. It's literally handicapping us. It's literally rewiring our brains, and men particularly, because we're more visually oriented. We're more left-brained, and it's a killer. It is an absolute killer, and the psychiatrists are coming out saying, the neuroscientists are saying, stay away from it. And if you've got a problem, get help because it will threaten who you are and everything you try to do. Sorry to get in your face. (laughs) But I've worked with young adults for a lot of years and I've seen what this does to them. There's a psychiatrist, and I forgot to put his name in my notes, but there's a psychiatrist from Stanford who's done a study and he's written a book and it's called The Demise of Guys. And he's the one that's done the, the serious studies and the, the neuroscientific scans, the brain scans, and so on and so forth. And his conclusions are this, very simply. When our young teenagers, our men in particular, reach adulthood and go to cross over into adulthood, they are literally handicapped. Because of video games and internet activity and internet pornography, they can no longer learn by traditional learning methods. They can't sit through a lecture. They have an attention span of about five minutes. They can't carry on relationships because that involves conversation and socializing and they can't do it. And they can't really have a romantic relationship because that really takes conversation and attention. And so what we're seeing now, what we used to see at the age of 18 in many young men, the characteristics and the maturity, you know what happens? We're not seeing it until they're 25. Because this internet stuff, and and pornography in particular, delays the maturation process. Oh, friends, these sensual sins that Paul's dressing, they're killers. They're absolute killers. And Paul says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Well, oh, gee, Pastor Randy, why do you have to throw wrath in there? (laughs) Well, that's because it's the other side of God's love. You see, I don't hate heroin addicts. I hate heroin because of what it does to them. 
I'm sick and tired of hearing about overdoses and deaths needlessly. But I don't hate the person. I hate the heroin and what it does to them. And that's the way God is with us. He loves us. He's given us the most wonderful gift with sexuality, one of the most wonderful gifts. But he's given it with boundaries to make it and keep it the way it should be at its best. And when we think we know better and we violate what his principles are, we're going to pay a price. And sometimes his wrath is just holding back his blessings and allows us to suffer from the sin we've just sinned. So friends, be careful. Be careful. If you're a young person here today, or really anybody who struggles with this, here's some of the things that I have taught young people in terms of if they have a struggle with sexuality. Here are just a few thoughts to help us in this process of mortification, particularly with sensual sins. Number one, do your homework. That is, know yourself. Where are you strong? Where are you weak? Where are you vulnerable? Where can you be tempted? Know yourself. And know God's plan for sexuality. Number two, build your convictions from the word of God. Not from culture, not from your best friend, not from your boyfriend or girlfriend, but the word of God. Number three, set your boundaries. In other words, you got to be proactive. Don't you walk into a dating situation without having some kind of a plan, a game plan, boundaries, well-established And then number four, you communicate all over the place. (laughs) Don't be afraid to make your position and your convictions known. And who cares who laughs? Number five, accountability and community. In other words, have somebody that holds your feet to the fire. (laughs) Number six, anticipate temptations. Believe me, the evil one and people around us, all right, are going to be sources of temptation. Ask the question, what if, then I will respond this way. So have a plan. Deepen your love for Christ, number seven. You know, when Phil Yancey mentioned that this sexuality incinerates vows and commitments and all these other things, guess what does a better job of incinerating the old nature, and that's deepening your love for Christ. It's like oil and water. The more you get of one, the less you have of the other. And the more you love Christ, the less it's going to to incinerate and push out these other things. And then number eight, train yourself. Practice godliness. Be proactive. One of the things that I chose to do 40 years ago, I got the tip from Billy Graham. I never ride alone in the car with a woman, except my wife. And with the exception of maybe one time, I violated that. And that was I took an 80-year-old woman who was at our house for dinner, three blocks home for dinner, after dinner. But it's kept me in line. It's kept me proactive, thinking out ahead, because I can't tell you how many pastors have fallen because of it, not having a plan. You know, remember um, a few years ago when Prince Harry was in Vegas? And uh, what happens in Vegas is supposed to stay in Vegas. 
But with Prince Harry, there were some photos that got out and were on social media of Prince Harry in some very compromising circumstances. And you know what his response was to the media when they challenged him on it? He says, too much army, not enough prince. (laughs) In other words, he stepped out of his role as prince and he went the wrong way. In other words, he was not faithful to who he was and he chose the lower road. So fathers today, it is Father's Day, I can't tell you enough how much your purity is going to mean, not only in your own life, but as you lead your families, as you lead your children and help them understand in a holistic way this whole idea of sexuality. You think it's bad now? I'm scared to death for my, for my grandkids, what they're going to see in their lives, on television, on the radio, in the classroom, and wherever they go. And I'm trying to drill into my grandchildren even now as a grandfather to disciple them and help them see holistically why God has such wrath and yet love in this category for us. Well, the second thing, that's enough of that. Mortification, that's the first process of what this new life looks like. The second thing is termination. Paul says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Rid yourself. Get them out. Terminate them. Throw them out of your life. And notice the second target. First target was sensual sins. The second target now is social sins. Because social sins harm and destroy community. And so he starts pounding away. And perhaps this is our second Achilles heel, as all human beings can verify by experience. Anger. Anger. That chronic feeling of being angry. And then there's rage, those uncontrolled outbursts when we don't get our way. Or something stands in the way of my goals. Then there's malice. That's when rage just kind of is suppressed and then begins to ooze out in my attitude toward people. And then there's slander. That those spiteful pot shots we take at other people and a way of trying to pull down their reputations to defame them. And then there's the dirty language. Now, this isn't cursing. This is actually verbal abuse. The words that we use to hurt people, to control them. And then there's lying. He says, don't lie to each other. You see, it's rooted in our attempt to gain advantage over other people. You see, deceit reveals a lack of trust, mutual trust, and it breaks down trust. It undermines relationships, and it breeds anger. So Paul says there, speak the truth. Build trust with people. These things have to go if you're going to be in Christ. And it's not just a one and done deal. It's a process of termination. A process. The third thing, the third process that Paul shows here is renovation. Renovation. You 
have clothed yourselves with a brand new nature that is continually being renewed as you learn more and more about Christ. You know, it's interesting here where he uses the metaphor of clothing. You've taken off the old clothes and you put on new ones now. Have you ever heard the phrase, what you wear doesn't matter? Well, I'm here this morning to tell you, oh, it does matter. You don't wear a clown suit to a funeral, right? (laughs) You dress appropriately. I remember several years ago, the, the women's soccer team who won the world championship, I forget what they won, but the team showed up at the White House to meet the president in flip-flops. And boy, did they get hammered for that. You don't dress that way when you go to visit the president of the United States. I told my students at Malone when I was the chaplain there, I said, don't wear flip-flops to an interview. When the guy who's interviewing is probably wearing wingtips. <laughs> you got to dress appropriately. You think LeBron James is going to show up tonight in a swimming suit? Of course not. Of course not. You see, we got to dress the part. If we're going to be in Christ, then we take off the old nature and we put on the new. We change out our wardrobe, if you will. We have to learn how to dress appropriately, how to act appropriately. You know, think of a time, let me be extreme in this, but think of a time in your life when you were the dirtiest. Something come to mind because you visualize it? For me, it's a no-brainer. When I was in the Army, we would be out in the field practicing and training for sometimes weeks on end, and we wouldn't change our uniforms. Can't do that in the field, especially when you're a paratrooper. You can't carry that kind of stuff with you all the time. So weeks in humidity and rain and dirt and body odor. And over a couple of weeks, you were pretty ripe. But it kept the mosquitoes away. (laughs) And you know, you got so used to it, you didn't even notice it anymore. And then when you did notice it, you think, why Why am I trying to run around here and hide from the enemy? They can smell me a mile away. But I used to come home after a couple of weeks in training, and I'd come home, and my wife would make me undress out in the carport. (laughs) Then I'd go take a shower. Well, what would it look like if I went to the shower and got all clean and dried off and beautiful and wonderful and handsome, (laughs) and then I went back out and put those old clothes back on? Would that make sense? Of course not. But that's what Paul is saying. When we act out of character... It's like we just took a shower with our new nature, and then we go put the old clothes back on again. That doesn't make sense. So Paul is saying, be who you are. If you're in Christ, then think like it, and then act like it, and let it ooze out of your pores. Here's something very interesting that I found. It's a quote from Edro Arupe, who's a Jesuit priest. And he said it this way. Nothing is more practical than finding God. 
than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. The person or thing you're in love with affects everything in your life. It determines what you do when you get out of bed, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, who you spend time with, what breaks your heart, and what brings you joy. Fall in love with Christ, stay in love with him. Your love for him will decide everything. Enough said? I think that says it all right there. The fourth process, the fourth and final process that Paul is using here to show us what the new life looks like is unification. Notice he says, in this life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, that is barbarian, uncivilized, Scythian, if you're using the NIV translation, slave or free. In other words, what Paul is saying here is when Christ comes, he levels the playing field. There is no longer any distinctions of race, of culture, religious kinds of things or badges that we wear. No distinctions. You see, when he says Jew and Gentile, Back in those days, the Greeks, it was the Greeks against the world. <laughs> if you weren't a Greek, you're outside, you're, you're out of bounds. That's how they thought of themselves, very snobbish. And then the Jews could be likewise. It's the nation of Israel versus the other nations, versus the other nations. But in Christ, there is no Greek, there is no Jew or Gentile. And then there's the Circumcised or uncircumcised, those are the religious badges. You know, some of you are probably thinking, well, I was born and raised in the church, and you like that badge. Some of you said, I was, I was in church before I was born, <laughs> and it's a badge we like to wear. Or I was saved and sanctified when I was 10. It's a badge, and we use it to think differently about people who aren't where we are. Paul says, no, no, no. In Christ, there is no distinction. And then there's the barbarians. They were the uncivilized type. And then there were the Scythians. They were the uncivilized of the uncivilized. For those of you who are in the older generations, they were the Klingons. <laughs> Today, they were the orcs. Or maybe by some people's terminology, the rednecks. But in Christ, all of these distinctions disappear because Christ is all and is in all. And then when you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says, in Christ there is no what? Male or female. So even gender differences should no longer separate us. You know, I love the story back in, that comes from the year 202 AD. And it was a time when Christians were crucified. They were martyred because of their faith in Christ. They were violating basic Roman law in that they were not worshiping the emperor or the gods of Rome. If you wanted a fast track to the Colosseum, just believe in Jesus. And there was an interesting situation in 202 AD where a woman by the name of Perpetua, 
She was a very well-to-do, wealthy, prominent Roman matron who believed in Jesus. And they were taking her to the Colosseum, to the arena, to be killed, martyred. And you know what she did? She reached over and she grabbed the hand of Felicity, who was her slave girl. And when you were a slave in the first century, you had no identity. You had no property. You were nothing. You were basically a tool for the wealthy. And even though Perpetua and Felicity were on different ends of the scale, when they grabbed hands, they were demonstrating their oneness in Christ. Outer differences, but inner sameness. And they were martyred together. And the crowd marveled. And that's probably the kind of thing that led Tertullian to later write, oh, look at those Christians, how they love each other. No distinctions. But Christ is all and is in all. So we come to mortification, the processes of what this new life looks like for us. Termination, renovation, unification. Christ unifies us and we're to practice being of one mind and one heart together in unity. Now some of you are saying right now, man, this is a weird way to live. I mean, this is demanding. Paul's getting in my face and I don't like that. Well, guess what? As J. Vernon McGee used to say, this is God's universe. He does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> So suck it up and drive on. Get over it. If you're going to be in Christ, then think like it and act like it for Jesus' sake. So what does this kind of life look like in the flesh? Let me give you an example from church history. John Wesley. There's a professor at Liberty University who is far from, in theological opinion and conviction, from John Wesley, what he used to be. But in his office hangs a full life or a full measure uh, banner of John Wesley, a drawing of him. And one of my pastors went into his office one day and says, why do you have John Wesley on your door? I mean, you're a Calvinist, right? What's John Wesley got to do with you? And he says, John Wesley was the greatest Christian since the Apostle Paul. And John Wesley has a quote that I want us to stand and read together because this, in essence, is what Paul is saying to us. Just stand. And if you don't agree with this, then don't say it. Just keep, keep your mouths closed. But if you're serious about living in Christ, John Wesley articulates it so well. Read with me together. Let's read in unison. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. 
I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Now, there's a man who knows how to dress. He's cast off the old, and he's putting on the new. He's changing out his wardrobe. So be it with you and with me. Father God, we come before you. 
after hearing your word, Lord, may it challenge our hearts to go and to be consecrated, set apart for you, to throw off that old self, to live anew in you. And Lord, may that be our worship as we go from this place, living sacrifices of praise to you. And Lord, may that speak to a watching world looking for hope, looking for newness in life. Message to the world, Lord. We ask this in your name and give you all the glory.